Well, so good to be together this morning. So great to see you gathered here with God's people. This is a special time. I know we get so familiar with being together on Sunday morning, we can stop feeling like this is a unique gathering. But it is. It's, it's like nothing else that we do in the week. That doesn't mean the other things aren't important. But this is just a unique time that God brings grace into our lives in some unique ways. And so thank you for treasuring this time to be together this morning. I'm going to start a, uh, a little mini-series here, usually beginning of the year. I'm just trying to wait on God and, and get a sense of what God is perhaps right now in this moment wanting to communicate to us. So, you know, usually we're teaching through books of the Bible, just going to the next verse, trying to get an understanding of what Scripture says. But this sort of a series usually is something that I'm just sensing the Lord wants to say something to us about where we are right now. So it's just kind of a pulling over to the side and meeting with God and hearing something. And I just think the word this morning is extremely, extremely important, um, extremely necessary, very critical in our lives. So I'm grateful that you're here uh, to hear the word of the Lord this morning. Um, you guys may or may not be familiar with this, and you guys realize I am, I am a anti-social network. I don't know what I am, right? I'm just kind of weird when it comes to social networks. I get that. Matter of fact, some of you were shocked that there was an announcement from me on social media. <laughs> uh, I just write the script. I don't even know how to post it, but somebody did post that for me <laughs> into the world of social media. But apparently in the land of social media... There are all kinds of like fun little apps that you can do stuff with, right? There's all kinds of word apps and puzzle apps. And there's a new trivia app that's out, right? How many of you guys have heard of Trivia Crack? Wow, not nearly as many as I thought. Uh, I get visited with Trivia Crack on a regular basis because my kids play this game and they don't know the answers to these questions. So in some sense, you feel, you know, kind of important. It's like, hey, I'm the go-to guy around here. Uh, and then at some point, you're very annoyed that you have to provide the capital to Poland or something. Um, but it's a trivia game, right? So I thought appropriately we would, we would start this morning with a little trivia question here from your own personal history. This is what the app looks like if you go on and play Trivia Crack. As a new year begins, what best describes your soul's condition? Right? You're coming in here this morning. Here's your choices. Desperately in need. I don't know. I don't look inward much. Pretty well. You know, life's good for the most part right now. Or I'm seated in heavenly places. All my needs are met. All right, so... And, you know, at some point, I'm going I'm to get this because I love to do this kind of stuff with an audience. There's a little device I can get that I can actually give to every one of you. We could do a live survey right now. They're a little expensive, so I'm waiting for them to get cheap, but we're going to do something like that. So I, I'd be curious, so what, what would you pick as your answer for beginning the year and your soul's condition this morning as you walked in to be amongst God's people? Well, let me, let me introduce you to the newsflash that's in your outline there. You are designed by God to be desperately in need. So if you feel like you're in need, uh, you're not out of bounds. That's exactly how you should feel. God designed you 
that way. He designed for you to feel need. If you walked in here this morning and, you know, you're one of those, I don't really know, I don't look inward much, that doesn't mean that you're not in need this morning, desperately in need. It just means you're not paying attention, right? If you're, well, I'm pretty well set. Life's good for the most part. Um, That doesn't mean that you're not desperately in need. It just means that a few pleasant things have distracted you for the moment. You've been, you got a few years behind you. You know, that's going to change, right? And you're going to be facing a moment where life feels like it's way too big. I can't handle it. You might be spiritually really feeling on your toes this morning. I'm seated in heavenly places and all my needs are met. Uh, That sounds really good. It even sounds biblical, doesn't it? But yet the Bible presents you as a person who is desperately in need, even though that's true. So claiming covenant realities, claiming that, hey, if you even weren't here and you were in heaven right now, did you know that you'd still be in need? Because you're desperately created by God, desperately to be in need, right? And you, and you know that in some categories, right? If, uh, if you're in a swimming pool and somebody holds you underneath the water, your body screams at you that I need to breathe, right? You panic. You won't even last a minute. If I put you under the water, you wouldn't even last one minute without freaking out. Now, you know, food, water, you need those things. You may not come to grips with how desperately you need them in 30 seconds or a minute, but, you know, maybe it'd be a couple of days for some. Maybe, maybe you could really do the hunger strike thing for a while and, and, and be holding out on food for a while. But at some point, your limited body would say, I need something. You're that way emotionally. You're that way relationally, right? There is a sense of need for love and for care and for connection with people. You know, they do experiments on people by isolating them to see just how weird they'll become by just removing them from human contact and the impact that it has on them. Well, those, those are needs that we know we have in our lives. But, but what about the need for God that exists in our lives? And, and how do you connect with God in such a way that that need gets affected by the Lord himself. Well, I want to talk to you this morning. I'm going to start this little series. It's called Drawing Near, and I titled today's message, Sad, Spiritual American Digestive Disorder. I know it's a big title. Hang in there. Let me start by talking about a famine that exists in the land in which we live and in the way in which we live. And it's a famine that can only, only, only be remedied in prayer. in prayer as what prayer is, as an experience in God. Not by praying it away, by actually praying is the only way that this famine ever gets remedied. Charles Spurgeon, in his morning and evening devotion, started the year on January 2nd saying this, it is interesting to remark how large a portion of sacred writ is occupied with the subject of prayer either in furnishing examples, enforcing precepts, or pronouncing promises, we scarcely open the Bible before we read, then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. And just as we are about to close the volume, the amen of an earnest supplication meets our ear. Instances are plentiful. Here, we find a wrestling Jacob. There, a Daniel who prayed three times a day. And a David who with all his heart called upon his God. On the mountain, we see Elias. In the dungeon, Paul and Silas. 
we have multitudes of commands and myriads of promises. What does this teach us but the sacred importance and necessity of prayer? We may be certain that whatever God has made prominent in his word, he intended to be conspicuous in our lives. If he has said much about prayer, it is because he knows we have much need of it. So deep are our necessities that until we are in heaven, we must not cease to pray. Dost thou want nothing? Then I fear thou dost not know thy poverty. Hast thou no mercy to ask of God? Then may the Lord's mercy show thee thy misery. A prayerless soul is a Christless soul. Now don't get too theological on me. Now I want to be very practical. And I want to say this about our, our encountering God in prayer. A prayerless soul is a Christless soul. Am I saying you're not a Christian? Not necessarily. I'm raising questions. I am raising questions. The spirit of God jealously yearns for communion with God. If that yearning is not inside of you, then you have very good grounds to question whether you're a Christian at all. But even if you are a Christian and this is not a developed category in your life, your soul is like a Christless soul. Because there's not a lot that can affect your soul the way prayer can. And to not pray is to be a Christless soul. Prayer is the lisping of a believing infant, the shout of a fighting believer, the requiem of the dying saint falling asleep in Jesus. It is the breath, the watchword, the comfort, the strength, the honor of a Christian. If thou be a child of God, thou wilt seek thy father's face and live in thy father's love. Pray that this year thou mayst be holy, humble, zealous and patient, have closer communion with Christ and enter oftener into the banqueting house of his love. Pray that you mayest be an example and a blessing unto others and that thou mayest live more to the glory of thy master. The motto for this year must be continue in prayer. This is a huge topic in scripture. It is a vital topic. It is one that I think is a total deal killer if you're gonna be a real Christian. To not have a prayer life is to sabotage your walk with God. And I really felt like this is where God needed to start us this year. Prayer is an honest measuring of our sense of desperation for God and the needs that exist in our souls. That's what prayer is. To not find time, to not interact with God in prayer is to give away the sense that we are not desperate for him. We just simply are not. We have other resources. We have other hopes. We have transferred our dreams somewhere else. And, and you know, when I stand up and say, hey, is, is your hope in Christ? Oh, yes. Keith, my hope is, my hope is in Christ. Are you desperate for God? Oh, yes. Do you pray much? Well, not really. Those, those statements can't go together. They cannot live together. The lack of a prayer appetite and eagerness and longing to commune with God and be in God's presence gives away whether or not I'm really desperate for him or not. To extract that from my life, I lose all sense of convincing. I only have words left. I say I'm desperate, but I'm really not. There is a great 21st century famine 
occurring all around us, in the church, unfortunately, in our world. You know, famine's interesting when you read history. Famines are one of those mile markers in history. You know, you've got earthquakes in the year of the great earthquake or uh, the year of this great cataclysmic event. Famines are one of those cataclysmic events. And, and we are having a famine in this world, in the church. Famine in the scriptures in the Old Testament, two words were used, Rahab and Caphon. They both mean hunger and famine. So when you see the words hunger, you're seeing these words, this inner turmoil and desire. In the New Testament, it's the word limos. It means failure or want of food. Here would be my concern. I think I put this little phrase in your outline there. This is what famine does. It redefines people's lives. When famines hit, life changes. Normal goes away. Healthy existence is no longer available when a famine hits. When famine conditions exist, people live differently. They don't live in the good of what they were designed for. They live in an adjusted and displaced life. Whenever you encounter famine in history, suddenly whatever was the normal way of doing life, the normal way of of relating, the normal way of going to work every day, the normal way of having needs met, when famine hit, all of that changed. Suddenly, life was quite different. You see this in scripture, right? Several passages I put there in your outline that that feature two words. I just want to highlight these two aspects of a famine. One is dislocation and the other is desperation. When famines come, dislocation always occurs and desperation always occurs. Look at these passages. We're just going to catch a quick glimpse at them. Ruth chapter one. In the days when the judges ruled... There was a famine, right? That's the feature event now. When you read that, it's the mile marker. This is what was going on. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons sojourn. Famines dislocate people. Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Right? He, Abraham's rumor leaves Ur of the Chaldees to go not to Egypt. The promised land of God was not in Egypt. But famine dislocates you from those promised places. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now come back to that in just a moment because I want you to recognize that dislocation brings difficulty with it. This is a conversation that Abraham would never be having with his wife unless he was dislocated into the land of Egypt when who knows what they'll do to us there. So you're going to lie about who you are to protect me from being killed. He wasn't worried about that in his homeland. That wasn't the game plan back there. To live in the place of promise and good, you didn't have to worry about those things. But when famine hits and you get dislocated, you've got a whole new set of problems that you never had before. You've got new territory to worry about. 1 Kings 17. Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Of course, no dew, no rain means famine. 
And the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. Second Kings chapter eight. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can. I like to hear those words. Leave your home, leave your business, leave your fields, leave your means of resources, leave the familiar surroundings where you know where the bad people are and the good people are and who you can trust and who you can't. Leave all that and take your family and just go wherever you can. Wherever I can, yeah, wherever you can. This is, this is the world that gets created by famine. It's dislocating and it's desperate. It sets you in a place where suddenly life feels insecure. There's more threats. You're uncertain. You don't know where the next enemy is going to come from. And you've got to create strange ways of dealing with situations like, hey, Sarah, act like you're my sister. Right? This is the conditions that famine create. And this desperation, it gets captured in this verse in Job chapter 30. It says, through want and hard hunger, they gnaw the dry ground by night and waste and desolation. They pick saltworts and the leaves of bushes and the roots of the broom tree for their food. Now, those were three things people didn't eat. Saltwort was a miserably bitter marsh grass. You didn't eat that. Nobody wanted to eat something that tasted that nasty. Nobody ate bushes. And how many guys got bushes growing in your yard? I mean, you ever tempted just to say, hey, babe, how about, how about a big bowl of bushes tonight? <laughs> and I'm going to go out with the hedger and uh, come in with a fresh crop. You know, ain't nobody eating bushes. The broom tree, the root of a broom tree, you use those roots to create charcoal. That's what that was good for. How about when that becomes your food? That's what you're going to eat. That's how desperate these times were. Well, what happens when there are spiritual famines? Those are the descriptions of physical famines. What happens when there's spiritual famines? Well, that's what happened in Amos chapter 8. Amos is probably the first of the writing prophets. He writes before Isaiah's time. And these were some desperate times that were coming upon God's people. And God decrees this about a famine that was going to come into the land in Amos chapter 8, verse 11. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea. Can you see the similarities here? This location, they shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. In that day, the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. Right? These are desperate times of a people who have been dislocated by a spiritual famine. So the same imagery that we get from studying real famines physically, 
They arrive in our lives when there is a famine of hearing the voice of God in our lives. That's what these guys were desperate for. A day in which there was no voice to hear. A day in which they lived in which they had not received insight and revelation and an active sense of communication from God in their lives. That's not occurring now. And so they they end up wandering. They're unsettled. They're unrooted. They're insecure. They're threatened by opposition. Now listen, take this out of the desert sands and, and, and put it into the living rooms of the suburbs of America. When you and I begin to wander, we don't physically wander, do we? But we mentally wander, don't we? How many of you guys know what it is to mentally wander? To have your mind just racing. I mean, I've had times when I've laid down at night and my mind is racing and it cannot find rest. And it runs to the north and it runs to the south and it runs to the east and the west. And you just want to just turn it off. It's like, God, is there a switch somewhere that I can just turn this noise off? You hear that and you run and you run. See, mentally, we, we know what this experience is like. They shall fall and never rise again. Right, can, let me just install this just as a, a breathing room moment here. Uh, falling is normal. If you've become a Christian who never falls, you must live in a closet just locked inside. If you get out and you attempt to do anything in your life, you are going to fall down. You still live in a fallen world. You are still wrapped in a body that's got weakness, vulnerable. You are going to fall. So in some way, it's not an encouragement for you to fall. It's just a reality. Because if you're not ready for when you fall, then you don't know how to get up either. So all around the room here, just the variety of people that are here this morning, from young to old, Right, teenagers, you're going to fall. Parent, parents and church, can you not freak out when teenagers fall? Can you just take a moment and remember you were a teenager once? My kids have a huge advantage on me in this category because I, I was a problem teenager. And so I, I got lots of resume history of doing really stupid things. Your teenagers are going to fall because they're human. Because the day when they stop falling, do you know when that day is? Does everybody know when the day you stop falling is? You're dead. Thank you. Yes. It's when you put on a glorified body and you're in the presence of God and there's no devil there and there's no temptation. There's no sin present. Parents, you're going to fall. You're going to do the wrong thing. You're going to fall short. Husbands and wives, you're going to fall. Read all the books you want, and I read a lot of them. Books don't make you stop falling. You still fall. But, but here's the unique thing about the economy of God. God recognizes the fall, but God is the God of resurrection. So he doesn't just step in when you fall. He steps in when you're good and dead, when you're Lazarus and you just stink, Right? And then God steps in and his voice gets heard by Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. Except in the day of famine when there is no voice from God. And this is what you hear when you fall. Nothing. 
How many of you know when you've fallen and you're in discouragement and you're down, you need God to intervene in that moment. You need his voice to say something to you. You need him to say, I'm still your father. I've not quit. I've not abandoned you. You need him to say there's purpose in this moment in your life right now. I'm at work right now in your life. Do not panic. And you need God to call to mind the moment when when Joseph was abandoned in a jail cell that we see through God's word and revelation that God was at work in that moment. See, I need to hear the voice of God when I fall down. But in the day of famine, we don't hear God's voice. So you fall down and you stay down. Because there's no sense of hope. There's no sense of inner strengthening taking place in our lives. Now, if you fall without hope, that's a pretty desperate place. And I promise you, you will become someone different than you probably have ever been before. Your worst day just became a vacation-looking opportunity for you. Whatever you've been, the worst condition you've ever been in, you fall in the moment of desperation. If you've just failed, something collapsed on you, and you have no hope to get up, and you go into panic mode. How many of you guys know what it looks like for you, personally, to go into panic mode? How many of y'all are mean people when you panic? You bunch of liars. <clears throat> Ask the people around you whether you're mean or not. Ask your children how impatient you become, right? How intolerant you become. How abusive people become, right? I mean, just get in people's worlds. I mean, sometimes you're watching an abusive situation take place. And I know that's all we see and it's got to get addressed and it's critical in that moment. But you know what, what preceded that panicky, angry, freak out kind of adventure for that person was a sense of, I have fallen down and I have no hope. I have no hope that this can ever be different now. And now I'm in panic mode and I'm swinging and I'm self-preserving and I've lost sight of whether or not I'm hurting you or not. Where where did these conditions come from? When you encounter meanness and anger and abuse and neglect and impatience and disinterest, you ever ever have a relationship with somebody who just doesn't ever seem to take interest in you? Where does that come from? A famine. It comes from that person living in famine conditions. They have stopped hearing the voice of God, the voice that brings resurrection, the voice that brings hope and the sense of purpose in life, that voice is gone. And so they are desperate. You and I are created for divine communion and encounter with God. We are created for that. Experiencing and dwelling in a living, thriving communion with God is not optional. It is essential to the beings that we are created to be. Communing and hearing the voice of God is not optional. It's not optional. Stop treating it like it's optional. You are becoming a weirdo. And and how many of us, you know, when we start getting to be weirdos, we want to reach into our file of weird people that we have to relate to and say, they're causing me to be weird. Have you you stopped to think that you're weird because the voice of God is nowhere to be heard in your life? 
You got no ballast in your ship. You got nothing of the quality of a God drawing near to you and being bigger than whatever's happening in your life and bringing some stability into your soul. That voice isn't there, therefore there's no stability. You are freaked out. And that's how you feel and that's how you live. Look at Psalm 63 with me. Everybody turn to Psalm 63. While we're reading this, I want you to look for two things that I put in your outline there. One, an inner condition that drives each and every one of us. There is an inner condition in this passage that is inside of us as well. And second, there's a living exchange taking place here, right? Eventually, I'm going to land in the category of prayer. I just want you to see prayer go on display in this psalm. There's a living exchange. This is not dead. This is not conceptual. This is not books on a shelf somewhere. This is a living exchange in the moment of this man's life. All right, so look for both of those. Psalm 63, verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts. For you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because you're steadfast. Just look at how many things this guy sees about God in this moment, right? Just make a list. Beholding your power and your glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My lips will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. There is a a living condition revealed. And it's not just true of the psalmist. It's true of every human being because we were made by God to be desperately in need of him. This psalmist just writes about the condition that's in our lives on an everyday basis. My soul thirsts for you, God. My soul was made to connect with you, to commune with you, to know you and receive from you and exchange with you. That's what my soul was created for. I remember Jesus responding in the desert of temptation with the devil in Matthew chapter 4. It says, it is written... Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What does man live by? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. Man lives on God speaking to him. Man lives on revelation from God. My soul needs to see God revealed to me. But it's very tempting. It's so tempting that even the devil who knows more than everybody in this room does about a lot of things was fooled into thinking he could get the son of man to fall by tempting him with things in the natural. 
Why does that verse start with, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God? Why are those two things in the same sentence together? Because apparently this first one is a common mistake. It's very easy to believe that the good of my life is bound up in my ability to satisfy my natural desires and my natural needs. I get up in the morning, I schedule my day, I make my priorities, I run after certain things because those things I'm hoping are going to fill my soul as I fill my belly or fill my mind or do something that's meaningful or connect with people a certain way. But Jesus recognized the greatest need of my soul is not bread. It's, it, it's not natural things. It's the voice of God. My soul needs to hear God. Otherwise, I live in famine conditions. And it, this, is, this is a fact, right? This is spiritual physiology is what it is. Whether you know this about yourself or not, whether you can explain anything about the fact that when you leave here today, there's something inside of you that's going to force you to go eat something. Everybody's going to eat today. I almost can promise you that. Unless you're on some strange fast. You're going to eat today. Can you explain to me why you're going to eat? Can you explain to me why you eat so much? (laughs) Oh, so often? Maybe you can. Maybe you paid attention in physiology. There's something in you. It's it's a fact. No one comes into this world like, hey, that dude over there, he's going to need to be taught the whole eating thing. He just doesn't get it. I haven't seen that guy eat in years. There's something inside of you, whether you get it or not, it goes off. Spiritually, there's something inside of you, whether you get it or not, it's hungry for something. And it's not natural things. It's hungry for God. And it's hungry for a living, real exchange. This is, this is where this breaks down into real encounter. Not what I think we've turned it into. Real encounter. Listen to the words that are in this psalm. There was looking beholding, meditating, experiencing, concluding, connecting, and convincing taking place in this psalm. That's real prayer. I don't don't know what we've grown to call prayer. Hey, you pray? All right, this is how you know if you're really praying, according to what the Bible calls prayer, there is looking in prayer. There is beholding. Beholding means you actually saw it. You didn't just kind of like, yeah, I didn't see anything. Meditating is prayer. Experiencing something is prayer. Concluding things, right? How many climbing to your prayer closet, the jury is out on a bunch of stuff, right? Do I freak out over this? Is there any hope in my future? Right? The jury's out. Prayer brings things into focus and brings things to conclusion. There's connecting. There's convincing in prayer. You ever just become convinced of something about God and something that he's doing? It, it takes prayer for that to happen. You and I have got a lot of concepts in our lives about God and his purpose that we're just not convinced of. We're not convinced of them. They're there. We're not convinced of them. And we never will be convinced of them. Unless we pray. Prayer is the place where the soul becomes convinced, connected, experienced, receiving, believing, beholding. It's in prayer. If there's not prayer taking place, then those things aren't going to be taking place either. It's just a fact. So here's my, my premise and here's my project at the start of the year 2015. Too many of God's people are living life 
in famine conditions. God's people living life in famine conditions, right? Headlines would read, in the days of the 21st century, there was a famine in the land. There's a difference between the famine that Amos described and the famine that you and I are experiencing. In the day that Amos described, Amos comes right out in catalogs and said, this is what's coming. God is about to withhold his revelation from you. You're going to You're going to look to the heavens and they're going to be brass. There's going to be silence. Search all you want. You will not get the voice of God to come into focus because it's not there. God had withheld his voice. I don't believe we're living in the day that Amos was describing. And yet we are living in the day that Amos was describing. Not because God has withheld his voice, but because our lives have withheld us listening for his voice. So there is a silence in our souls that is extremely unhealthy. It just cannot continue. But it's not because God is not making himself known. It's because we don't care to look. And we don't care to listen. We have imposed this famine on ourselves. We have created a starvation diet. To where hearing the voice of God doesn't take place in our souls. Did I write this warning in your outline there? Warning. I don't think we know this about ourselves. There's a great danger of not knowing the difference between tasting and digesting God's revelation and his words. Tasting is not the same as digesting. I'm going to give you a little physiology lesson this morning. This is just the extra stuff you get by coming to Lakeview. No, I'm not a doctor. I don't even play one on TV, but I, I, I could do research. Um, tasting is part of digestion. Matter of fact, it's the part we like the most. It's the funnest part, right? Taste buds. Do you guys ever just stop and thank God for taste buds? I do. I, I think that wasn't necessary. I've said this before. You know, you could have just stuck like some port in the side of my neck with a tube. And I just... Gloop, gloop, gloop. I don't taste any of it, just like fuel, like going to the gas station. But instead, there's this little taste bud party thing happening in my mouth. Right? I get to taste things. This is a gift from God. Tasting draws our attention to something. But there's a big difference between tasting something and digesting something. Right? Let me give you a little lesson here. I'll let, I'll let the specialist do it. This is how digestion works from wholefoods.org. The food you eat contains the nutrients that serve as building blocks and provide energy and nourishment throughout your body. In food, nutrients are contained in large molecules that are chemically and physically bound together. Digestion is the process of breaking down these tightly bound molecules into individual nutrients that can be taken into your body and used to support its functions. Simply defined, digestion is cutting things down to size in which they can be absorbed into your body. Absorption is the key. If you're going to be nourished, your body has got to absorb nutrients, not just taste them. Digestion occurs in the the GI tract. Whatever you eat flows through this system. But, 
But until it is absorbed through the intestinal tract, the nutrients in food are physically outside of your body. This is because the GI tract functions like an internal skin and provides a barrier between whatever you ingest from the outside external world and your internal bloodstream and cells. Part of the digestion process then is the selective transport of nutrients through the cell wall that lines your intestinal tract. Very important. Once transported across the intestinal barrier to the inside of your body, these nutrients can enter your bloodstream and circulate to all your tissue to maintain organ function, support your need for energy, and provide for growth and repair of new cells and tissues. So what is it about you physically that makes you healthy? Well, it's when nutrients get transported, they get broken down, right? This is not the part that happens in here. When you break stuff down in your mouth, it's just for the purpose of swallowing it. When it gets past that and travels through your esophagus and down into your stomach and then in your intestines, it's getting broken down for the purpose of dispersing it for the purpose of it being absorbed into your bloodstream so that it can travel to every little cell at the very tips of your fingers and your hair growing and your eyes seeing. So that this is why the old adage, you are what you eat. Because whatever it was that you ate, your body broke it down and transported it into every ounce of who you are. And you became healthy as a basis of digestion. There's a difference between tasting something and digesting something. All right, I'm, I'm going to flirt with danger in saying this. Sunday morning, it's more like a tasting room. You ever go to tasting rooms? Like tasting rooms, you know, you just kind of taste stuff. Sunday morning introduces you to ideas about God and truths about God and revelation about God. It's what preaching is supposed to do. So it's part of the digestion process, right? Part of it is seeing something, picking it up, knowing that that's good and I'm going to eat it and breaking it down, etc. Reading books can be that way. Somebody else serving something up to you is like tasting it. For it to be digested, it takes other things. It takes things like meditating and contemplating and confessing and dialoguing and believing and agreeing and receiving. Receiving. This is what's taking place in your GI tract. This is what takes place in prayer. When we pray, something happens to what we tasted and it begins to be absorbed into who I really, really am. That's very different than tasting. This is, this is a sad disorder that we have. We live in a taste bud oriented society. The digital age has thrown image after image in front of us. Heck, none of us want to read anything more than a page anymore. Who, who wants to meditate on something? Give me an image, uh, no more than two lines below the image to explain the image, I'll do the rest. And then I just want to click and go on to the next thing. Can, can I tell you, God's not digital. God's analog. And the reality is we're all moving away from God because he moves too slow. 
Keith, give me a, give me a quick word today. Give me just a, something real quick that I can run with. Just give me something to taste today. Just want to taste that. That's all. I'm just a taster. See, prayer is when you take what you've tasted and you go to the next level with it and you sit with God, you and God alone. You know how much, you know how much is going through you right now. There's so much interference right now for you to listen. You know, you're sitting with your spouse. I've said something that sounds like what she said to you the other day. You're filtering that. You're irritated by that. Shoot, what are the odds that he was going to say something like she said? And you didn't even listen to me for the rest of the time because you're trying to fend her off. You know what she's going to say afterwards. Uh, you walked in here. It's a big room full of people. And you're concerned about who thinks what about what. You're worried about how you dress. Whether you've got it together or not, you don't have it together. Your life's falling apart. It stinks. But somebody just greeted you. You want to look like you're cool. There's so much happening in this room right now. When you crawl into your prayer closet, none of that's happening. It's you naked with God. And unless you're a moron, it's the most honest moment of your life. Because you know, God knows everything. Right? I mean, do we need to have a special class on, on don't come bull God, you know? Don't come pull into the... I'm going to just let God think this is what's going on with me. I don't think anybody wastes their prayer time on that. You climb into your prayer closet with God and you know you are in the presence of an all-knowing, all-powerful God. And it's your most honest moment with him. And these things can become digested. You can see yourself the way you need to see yourself and you can see God the way you need to see God. And there's nothing like it available to you anywhere else. It is the private time of prayer between you and your God. By the way, it's what you were created for. And if it's not happening, I guarantee you, you are living in a famine. All right, here's my disturbing me. This is disturbing me. Concern. I think I called it the nutritional disconnect in American Christianity, right? Remember, you are what you eat. What you ingest becomes who you are, right? I asked my wife if I could share this non-flattering story about her. We haven't done this in a while, but, you know, years ago we would go to uh, crawfish boils, and we were really younger especially, my wife loves those garlic pods, like you throw all the seasoning stuff in there. Right? She doesn't just love the fact that they're on the table and that they had some influence on what she's eating. She loves to eat them one after another. <laughs> so we would go home at night and I'd cuddle up with my wife and smell the back of her neck. <laughs> and it was like... Oh, the crawfish boil. <laughs> and so after I kind of somehow made mention of that, eventually we would go to crawfish boils and she would ask, babe, would you be all right if I ate some of these? Because <laughs> she knows she was about to become what she ate. <laughs> and she was just willing to give me a shot to enter into the conversation on that. Listen, you and I hang around some really amazing concepts about God. I'm going to insult everybody here, so please don't think I'm talking about you. I'm talking about you. (laughs) 
we come into this meeting and I, I can say something about grace. We can say something about the grace of God that's come to us. And oh, we all, amen, grace, yes, grace, <gasps> grace, grace. I love the way grace tastes. And then you encounter our lives. Then you live amongst us for a little bit. And people don't smell like grace. They don't smell gracious. Can I just say some Christians are the most ungracious people I've ever met. I don't don't understand how we encounter a God who pursues us when we didn't have to earn anything from him because we couldn't. And he chose to run us down and bless us and fill our lives with so much that we do not deserve. We deserve the opposite. And yet not for a moment can you find me a passage where God says, earn your way to me and then I'll accept you. Instead, you find a God who runs us down and lavishes upon us his grace. And then we turn around and say we know something about grace and set up one requirement after another for people to meet. The way they do their life, the things that they say, how they treat us, how they don't treat us. There's conditionality has flown into the church in an obnoxious way. I've been saved for 30 something years now. I don't know if I've ever seen conditionality like it exists now in the church. You gotta do something for me lately before I'm gonna relate to you. I'm not going to sacrifice. And if you do something wrong toward me, I'm done. Defriended. Click. How's that possible? Well, here's how it's possible. Because we haven't digested grace. We've just tasted it. We can spell it. I can spell grace. I can point you to a few scripture passages about grace. But does it ooze out of my pores? No, no. When you, when you get around me, I'm a, I'm a self-promotion project. I'm not amazed that the God of the universe chooses to show up at the address of my life. I'm not amazed that I see the distance between a holy, infinite God and a nobody like me. I'm a nobody in the presence of God. See, grace teaches me that. Well, that sounds insulting. No, no, no. It's just a reality. I get my scale right. I don't have God a little bit better than me. I have him off the charts better than me. What are you doing hanging around me, God? You know what that does to my self-promotion? Do you know what that does to me not holding out my resume to you? I'm not trying to get you to be impressed with me because I've seen what's impressive and I don't play in that league. Do you know how many Christians are busy in every conversation they have with somebody trying to get somebody to think they're great? You know what that is? That's the guy who's only tasted grace. You don't know what grace is because you've not digested it. It's not coming out of your pores. Forgiveness. Everybody got some verses on forgiveness that they can bring up? Can you spell the word forgiveness? Yeah, I've tasted forgiveness. Yeah, I've been forgiven. I've tasted forgiveness. Do you know how many Christians are in this room right now who have forgiveness problems against somebody else? They, They won't even tolerate being with that person, much less do something extraordinary toward them. How does that happen? 
How, how does forgiveness get so thin and shallow and meaningless? Well, because we don't digest these things. We just taste them. We come for a moment. I, I tasted something about forgiveness. So it's got that, that sort of savory kind of flavor. Yeah, it's, you know, Keith's preached on that this morning. And I heard something about forgiveness. Go take it and digest it. Go get alone and naked with God and let God deal with you. I don't understand how I, people can call themselves Christians and they get, they get in the presence of people they can't forgive and they can't deal with them right and they can't love them. I've got to believe you don't know what a prayer closet is. You stand naked before God, honest before him, and you have a heart that says, I will not treat that person right. You won't stand long in that presence, I promise you. You will either run from it or you will get in agreement with it. And I hope you'll get in agreement with it. You get around God and these things change. Well, love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Are you kidding me? Have you been around Christians? Apparently, apparently... That's just a Bible verse to mention at a wedding between a husband and a wife. And God knows they're not going to do it either. <laughs> right? But if I said, hey, how many of you guys know stuff about the love of God? Oh, the love of God. That's what you know about the love of God. You know a little bit about how it tastes. But until love hopes all things, believes all things, and endures all things, you don't know love. And I don't know love. And here's the reason why I don't. Because I'm a taster. I'm not a digester. I don't sit with God naked in his presence, open for him and him alone, and let him interact and have real dialogue with me and bring real conviction and real self-awareness. So some of us don't want to crawl into a prayer closet because we don't want to look at us. Listen, you'll never find a safer place to have a look at yourself in the presence of God. Because then you'll hear his voice talk to you about who you really are. And it'll be the most freeing, wonderful, helpful thing you've ever encountered in your life. But what do we do when we're a people who don't live in the presence of God? We don't, we don't pray. We don't pursue God. See, prayer, prayer is what brings about digestion in our lives. You can read books. You can go to meetings. You can come on Sunday, and I hope you'll do all those things because you got to chew stuff up and you got to taste it. It's part of digestion. But the next step, what gets it into who we are, is prayer. If we're not a people who pray, then we are not a people who are going to become the things that we're eating. Oh, what a sad day of famine in the world of the church. I want to highly recommend this book to you. We have some available in the bookstore, uh, but today you can get books pretty easily. It is the latest book by Timothy Keller. It's called Prayer. I love his subtitle, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God. Um, It's not a quick read, but it is an extremely valuable read. It's one I would be asking everybody in the church at some point to spend some time in. So if you want to pick a copy up today, you can. If you want to order it from Amazon, you can get it there. Let me just give you a couple of thoughts from Tim Keller in closing. He says, prayer 
is a conversation that leads to encounter with God. John Calvin argues that Jesus' gifts for his people are not experienced by so many of them. That enjoyment, he says, can happen only through communion with Christ and the secret energy of the Holy Spirit by which we come to enjoy all his benefits. Later he adds, For the word of God is not received by faith as if it flits about in the top of a brain, but when it takes root in the depth of the heart, we must not settle for an informed mind without an engaged heart. Listen, that's what tasting is. We must not just taste things. We need to digest them. Calvin's idea that we, are, we have blessings in Christ we don't experience is expressed also in the great prayer by Paul in Ephesians chapter 3. If you go back and lead, read that prayer, remember it? That he may grant you to be strengthened with power in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. All right, Christians that you may be strengthened so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Christians, so that Christ may dwell. That's confusing language theologically, right? Keller picks up on that. He says, isn't Christ already living in Christians? Don't they already know his great sacrificial love? Why is he asking God to give Christians things they must surely already have? Well, at one level, Christians have these things. At another level, they haven't experienced them. It's one thing to know of the love of Christ and to say, I know he did all that. It is another thing to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. What Paul's talking about is the difference between having something be true in principle and fully appropriating it, using it, and living in it. It is possible for Christians to live their lives with a high degree of phoniness, hollowness, and inauthenticity. The reason is because they have failed to move that truth into their hearts and therefore it has not actually changed who they are and how they live. That's what a famine looks like. Not to just taste thoughts from God, but to experience who God really is. It's not just a a word for us relationally, although it very much is a word for us relationally. It's it's a word for you and I entering into the realities of what God has for us. The sense of desperation that's in our soul and dislocation to not live in the promises of God. It's a famine. Because we don't get around the voice of God. We don't know what God sounds like. One last thought from Mr. Keller. It says, you believe in a loving God. Then along comes criticism or rejection. Say a relationship breaks up or some failure that's a blow to your reputation in some realm. Anyone in such a situation will feel quite crestfallen and downcast. But there's a difference between being discouraged and being devastated. Between sliding into despondency and not being able to function. Listen. If God's love is an abstraction, right, just something you've tasted, it is of no consolation. But if it is a felt and lived reality through prayer, then it buoys you up. Right? Do you know how many of us go through someone, a moment of rejection? People that were in our lives suddenly have rejected us and our, our boat's upside down. We're drowning in the water. There's no sense of hope in our lives. Yeah, but God loves you. Oh, well, hey, thanks for the teaspoon full of nothing. 
I'm hurting, man. This is real, okay? Don't tell me God loves me. That's how we treat that, isn't it? Instead of being overwhelmed and amazed by a love from God that would swallow up these other things in our lives. We don't know God that way, though, in this moment. And therefore, who God is fails to buoy us up in that moment. And we were like those who fall and don't get up. He goes on and says, do you ever notice that if you're doing a task, you hear voices or music or other sounds on audio only, you can tune it out. If, however, you're trying to do a task and you are trying to watch something on video, it's almost impossible to tune out the video. That's what prayer does. It takes something you believe about God that is ignorable and detached from how you live and makes it vivid. Prayer encounter with God takes the love of God, the greatness of God, the power of God, the wisdom of God, which most of us experience only on audio, and it puts it on video. Prayer plunges us into the fullness of who he is, and his love becomes more real than the rejection or disappointment we are experiencing. Then we handle our problems and we can hold our heads up again. All right, don't, nobody has to raise a hand. Nobody has to respond at all. I just, I just want in your own heart to know whether, because I'm, I'm in this with you. I'm, I'm preaching the message and I'm preaching it to myself as much as I'm preaching it to anyone in this room. But can you acknowledge before God whether you just got a tour of your own life? Some of us are scratching our heads trying to figure out why is it that our Christianity doesn't seem to be very powerful? It doesn't seem to have much influence. It doesn't lift my head, lift my gaze, strengthen my steps. It just doesn't seem to answer. You live in a famine. And the sad thing is when you live in a famine, everybody looks like they're starving. So you know how common it is to bump into Christians who don't pray? That's so common today. Oh, for the day that we walk into a room and we just talk about not praying and we'd be surrounded by people who scratch their heads and go, I don't know what you're talking about, man. I don't know how I'd survive if I didn't pray every day, if I didn't find time, if I didn't have my soul connected with God, if I didn't commune with him, I don't know how I'd exist. But instead, we just join hands with everybody else who says exactly the same thing. Says, yeah, you know, I tried that. I don't ever, oh, I mean to, it's the beginning of the year, blah, blah, blah. It's a famine. Everybody starves in famines. We can't live this way. The church is not a tasting room. You can't come in here week after week and just taste things like grace and taste things like forgiveness and taste things like love and then walk out of here and you don't smell like any of them because there's no time when you and God are quiet together and God is being honest with you and you are being honest with him and the power of God is present in that moment in a God-ordained setting. Prayer is a God-ordained setting. You look throughout scripture as Spurgeon said, it's everywhere. People prayed who followed God. You have got to get around God. Or we can have meetings and meetings and meetings and teach and teach and teach. It won't matter. You're just going to be a taster. You'll have a little bit of knowledge. And unfortunately, you'll think you can explain grace to people. And you'll think you can explain. You can have a debate, unfortunately. 
church doesn't need any more debaters. It needs people who smell like they've eaten this stuff. What an impact we would have in a world that desperately needs to know something about these things. The world is starving for these things. Here's, here's a, you know, this little series. I have no idea how long it'll go. I don't intend to go very long with it. Um, but the series is called Drawing Near. Drawing Near. If you got my email invitation to church this morning, I think I can say this. If I could just give you one thing as a Christian, you already have Christ, the Spirit of God. If I could give you one thing that would revolutionize everything in your life, it would be prayer. Not disassociated from God's word. But if you don't ever get God's word in the prayer closet and communicate and commune with God, you will never know the life that you were called to live. You will never know it. You will know it at a tasting level, but you will not know it in the depths of your soul. And as a church, I believe God wants to help us in this. I believe God wants to help us start a year and see this be very different for each one of us. Let's stand up together. Lord, I know something of what Tim Keller is describing when he says that in the great hours of need in my life, in those desperate moments, Lord, is the truth about who you are just some abstraction that fails to buoy me up? something so simple to become so accessible to us. Prayer. Would you sober us into the realities that a prayerless soul is a Christless soul. It's a soul unmarked by the revelation of God. Unaffected. Staggering. Dislocated. Desperate in ways that we never should have been. We shouldn't have been living in a famine. This morning, my soul thirsts for you. I may be busy trying to fill my life up with bread, but God, my life comes from every word that proceeds from your mouth. Lord, would you renovate my life? Would you step in in grace, God? Would you capture my attention once again? Would you distance me from things that interfere? And would you meet with us in days to come? Lord, I know that there's an echo in hearts in this room tonight. Lord, when we settle down and we get rid of some of the noise, our hearts cry out, Lord, my heart does long for you. And I'm desperate to be in your presence, to receive from you. Lord, I believe that's the confession of our hearts. Lord, would you make a difference, God, make a difference. We don't want to be a tasting only bunch of people. God, we want to become these things that you have revealed to us. Gracious, forgiving, and merciful, loving, and righteous. 
take us past tasting and draw near to us, oh God. Father, come reveal the love that you freely given us. Poured from Calvary like a flood, we look to you. Spirit, move and shine your light. Change our hearts and fill our minds with the radiance of Christ. We look to
It's our desire, God, that you would come and move in our hearts. Lord, we want to be people who have not only tasted, Lord, but who have digested, who have feasted, who have been nourished upon all your truth, all that you are, God. Lord, help us apply this word this week. Lord, we go home this afternoon as we wake up tomorrow morning, Lord. We have opportunities to apply this word. Lord, would you come and move upon us? Your spirit, help us to desire you. Make us disciplined, God. We'll be a people who, who are rich and who are well-fed by their God. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.